are the Starbucks Red Cups, a tribute to Lenin. Answer me this, answer me this. Who's the best, Sir Ian, Botham or Merkelin? Answer me this, answer me this. Helen and Ollie, answer me this. Dum da dum dum da dum, veggie wedding. Bring on the beetroot, birdie wedding. How's that going for you? Uh, yeah, it's good. I've been singing it constantly since the last episode, Top actually. Top ten yet? And in fact, we've we've got some feedback on our discussion of our friend Tommy and Ishbel's wedding, veggie uh, wedding, veggie wedding, veggie wedding, wedding uh, from the last episode. It's from Poppy from Newborough in Fife who says, I was one of the waitresses Whoa. at Tommy and Ishbel's wedding. Wow. It was a properly lovely day and absolutely one of the best we've ever done. It was top notch. All vegan is no problem at all. Uh, in fact, the food looked utterly delicious and I wholeheartedly agree that the day should reflect the couple's lifestyle. The French-dwelling vegetarian, that's uh, Siobhan from the last episode, yes. should just go 100% veggie and the guests can like it or lump it. If you lump vegetables together, you've got casserole, haven't you? Or um, mash. Or a salad. Mm. You can like it and lump it. <laughs> uh, Actually, why, why isn't there a, a like it or lump it button on social media? Yeah. Where's the lump it button? Lump it. There was all that controversy <laughs> when Twitter introduced likes, but what we all want is lumps. Uh, anyway, uh, Poppy says, I'm working at a wedding fair today in Aberdeen, uh, and I've had an inquiry about a Harry Potter-themed wedding. Oh. Helen answered me this. Is this normal? It's not about whether it's normal, is no, it? People who, have whatever mm. wedding they like. I don't think normal weddings are the ones to avoid because... Uh, Tedious. Seen oh, it all white before. cake, seen that before. Yeah. White dress, bullshit. Whose Facebook photos are these? Was I there? <laughs> uh, should we accept the booking or will we end up with a hall full of owls? I mean, that is a genuine concern, <laughs> I suppose. I would have thought that people wouldn't hire owls in the same way as they would hire doves and release them out of a box because owls can fuck you up yeah. they're killers yeah yeah. so that would be quite interesting to see if you had a protective helmet or something but you know if they had symbolic owls like a Hedwig to come and bring the rings or something I'm sure there would be an owl handler yes. and it'd probably be too expensive to get a hall full of owls but I think it all depends really on the money for this job doesn't it food wise it would be quite an easy theme because you have to come up with the drinks you have to come up with butterbeer and pumpkin mm. juice but the rest just sort of Pretty mainstream English yeah, fare, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, probably like Christmas dinner. Yeah, any caterer should be able to do that quite well. He's yeah. got, this is magic pie, steak and kidney. <laughs> and then you just throw in some uh, novelty sweets, but they actually manufacture those, so no biggie. I'll tell you what I'd be concerned about, actually, if I was organising a Harry Potter-themed wedding. Is it that everyone has come dressed as a school child? <laughs> People would want to play Quidditch. Now, don't get me mm-hmm. wrong, I know that's not technically possible, listeners. Um, but I can imagine mm-hmm. that someone would... Because it would be a spectacular event when at the end of the meal, everyone goes outside, plays quote-unquote Quidditch, renting some sort of cutting-edge technological hoverboard that doesn't quite work and Mm -hmm. someone really hurts themselves. I don't think that would happen. I think there would be a stationary broomstick with a backdrop and people would take their picture in front of it as if they're flying in the air. That's good, yeah, that would be fun, wouldn't it? When did that thing happen at weddings that everyone has the photo booth with the dressing-up gear? Yeah, well, with a moustache on a stick and some funny glasses and wigs. And the first time you did it, it was fun, wasn't it? Genuinely fun. You're like, oh, what a novelty. I've never done it and I've never had fun. Okay. Uh, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Not just at weddings, but generally. It's now become a thing people have at weddings yes so like the wedding cake you're like oh yeah they've got that thing where you stand in front of the camera put a moustache on i just think uh weddings ought to be able to survive without such gimmicks but then if you're going full gimmick like this then uh, fair play to you that is impressive most people won't go to more than two or three harry potter weddings in their lifetimes yeah i think why not i mean poppy says actually as an adjunct to this uh, she asks if we had to theme our weddings <laughs> what theme would we go for now i'm oh. not getting married helen you have been married yes to i am still married yes technically. Yeah. if you had to theme your wedding 
What would you have gone for? Colombo theme, and everyone would wear beige overcoats, and I'd be walked down the aisle by a basset hound. Why didn't you do that? <laughs> I, don't, I honestly don't know. I think I'd go for a labyrinth-themed wedding. Oh, I was get labyrinth! Idea. At some level in my own mind... Uh, I am Jennifer Connolly, age 15. Is that who you would go as? It's who and I wanted to be when I was seven. And would your girlfriend go as David Bowie? <laughs> It'd be really weird if your wedding veil included the line, you have no power over me. I mean, it's, it's, that's it's very, true, very, but... That's good because, you know, relationships should be equal. Kim and Justin and... Helen. From San Francisco, and we have a question. Helen, always answer me this. Thank you. Um, why is it that when there's a... Queen of England, her husband is not referred to as the king, but as far as we know, when there's a king of England, his wife is referred to as the queen. Sexism, in a word. Oh, Against Prince Philip? No, against uh, women. Right. Paradoxically, so, even is, though the queen's the top of the tree. Is it if you had a king, that's automatically the most important position, even if you're a king because you're married to the queen? So you can't have a king if there's a queen... Yes. But you can't have is, a queen if there's a king because you're still going to be lesser. It's all about rank. And that, that goes all the way through even much lower strata than kings and queens. So even with lords and ladies, forget about the queens and kings for a minute. Mm-hmm. With lords and ladies, if let's say uh, Martin was Lord Muck and yep. you were just Helen Zaltzman peasant. <laughs> yeah, okay. Right? If you married Martin, mm-hmm. then you'd become Lady Muck. Yes. Um, because he had a title you get to share in his title, mm-hmm. a la Princess Michael of Kent. Oh, that's, that's such a sublimated identity. <laughs> right. However, if you were already Lady Muck because your father was Lord Muck and there were no uh, brotherly heirs... Yes. If Martin was Martin Peasant mm-hmm. and married you... Yep. It would be seen to be emasculating for the best title that he could have to be one that he'd inherited from his wife because the wife traditionally inherits the title of the husband... So you'd keep your rank because that is your place in society. You're Lady Muck, you're the daughter of Lord Muck. Yes. Uh, but Martin wouldn't be Lord Muck. He would uh-huh. be the consort to Lady Muck. The consort? That was uh-huh. a burn, isn't it? So when you're introduced at a posh party, it would be Lady Muck and Lady Muck's partner so-and-so. So actually, in a way, women benefit more from this unfair system, but they benefit more by being completely weak and helpless in the system. The lady can always inherit her husband's title if, if it's... If she kills if him. It, if it's a trade-up. Yeah. But the husband can't. So, because the king would trump the queen... <laughs> what uh, game are we playing? <laughs> like, in, like in chess. If Prince Philip had been made king by marrying the queen, then he'd be more important. He'd have a higher rank than her. Right. But to show the bloodline is that the queen is the most important person in the room. She stays the queen. He stays Prince Philip. So, I've got a question about Camilla. Mm-hmm. If the queen dies mm-hmm. and then Prince Charles dies... Does she become the queen, or is she just like the queen, the queen mum? No, that never. Yeah, that never happens. Exactly like the queen mum. Yes. Right. Yes. But if Charles dies, and then the queen dies, she's still not in line to the throne. No. Which queen are we talking about here? The queen. The, the current queen. queen. The current QE2. queen. If Charles dies and then Queen Elizabeth II in dies, in that order, then we'd end up with King William. Okay. Okay. All clear. Yeah. Good. Well, here is a question from Fiona in Melbourne, who says, "I was recently locked out of my house. Ha ha. Keys inside." Door shut, standard fare. So frustrating. Do you have a secret key stash somewhere? No. I mean, this is a block of flats, so you'd yeah. be foolish to keep I your key be under someone else's car. <laughs> <laughs> Fiona says, I made two calls from my mobile phone, which luckily I had on me. Turns out the locksmith is cheaper than the window repairman. Good tip. So I waited at my door for him to show up. Photo idea with my address on in hand. Mm-hmm. But... 
the locksmith wasn't the least bit interested. What? He walked up, confirmed that this was the door I wanted unlocked, and opened it right up. It could have been anyone's house! How dare he provide such an efficient and speedy service? Well, I think she has a point. Asking this question, Ollie answered me this. How is it that they can just unlock any door and not check first? Because they're a qualified locksmith, so they can unlock any door. I mean, obviously, that's the job no, description. No, but the point is, like, if Fiona had been standing outside a house she was intending to rob... Yes. ...and he's just helped her out like yes. why, why don't they require some kind of id so they do sort of it's it's sort of unofficial policy or it's probably official policy for most locksmiths but it's not the law that a locksmith has to see your id but if a locksmith knowingly uh, conspires to help you break into property mm. that isn't yours then obviously they would be liable as an accomplice to a crime so basically he was using his instinct Fiona he just guessed that you looked like a trustworthy person and there might be a whole variety of reasons for that do you think some of them is that women tend to get away with this stuff more easily than men would or how you're dressed I got locked out of my flat a couple of years ago I was wearing my dressing gown and pyjamas tip for burglars yeah go in that everyone's going to believe you go in your dressing gown and pyjamas say oh I don't have my mobile phone I had to call you from a phone box it's a brilliant cover story in the situation she described she phoned the guy from her mobile phone Mm. I don't know how she paid him whether it was cash or with the credit card at that point you know what the person looks like you know what the mobile phone number is you know what the credit card is now all those things that could be stolen but that's a lot of incriminating evidence mm. and that person that locksmith make a really good witness of the prosecution if you ever do get caught yeah yeah but the locksmith would get put away as well as an accomplice but th- what i'm saying is you wouldn't do that as a criminal because you would have someone who has a really good idea of you and a lot of information about you yeah what you do is make friends with a locksmith and actually yes. ask them to commit the crime with you yeah, exactly. <laughs> you yeah. wouldn't bother calling a locksmith just in case um <laughs> but yeah i mean they're, they're trusting on instinct and I think there's something to be said for that, isn't there? You can underplay the value of instinct in these scenarios, but actually if you've spent 20 years as a locksmith, you've probably got a pretty good feel for who's lying. You're probably always thinking it, aren't you, at the back of your mind? You can probably suss someone out who's lying straight away. Yeah, but at least you think you do, and then there's confirmation bias. So if they are lying, you're like, yeah, I could tell straight away, and if they're not, you just forget about it. Mm. Or you can never confirm it because you're like, yeah, they're lying. I just haven't got the evidence yet. Here's a question from Christina in Glasgow who says, Helen, answer me this. Is there any truth in the claim that drinking vinegar can suppress or delay menstruation. This is an idea that's been around since at least the 17th century, uh, and you still see it today on websites of home remedies. It's funny how those websites don't like some of the other medical treatments from the 17th century. Leeches. Trepanning. (laughs) Uh, But what I haven't seen, says Christina, is any sort of scientific proof that this works. Mm -hmm. Uh, So does this just show the persistence of old wives' tales, or has the belief lasted because it is true? Um, people are keen online to pop up saying, well, it worked for me. It was unbelievable. So do you trust anecdotal evidence or is it kind of placebo effect where they're like, oh, my periods are killing me. And that makes them feel like maybe it's helped because they've they've tried to address matters themselves. Hell of a distraction technique, though, isn't it? If you think your period's coming and then you drink a glass of vinegar. No, you don't drink a glass of vinegar. How much are you supposed to drink? I think you drink two spoonfuls with a glass of water because obviously if you drink neat vinegar too much, it'll be very corrosive. And they advise drinking no more than 10 spoonfuls a day. I can't remember whether it's tea or tablespoons. I think teaspoons. Like, the benefits of cider vinegar are one of, like, the most persistent health... Let's say not say myths. Things... Um, online or in those ads in the backs of magazines. And I think the thing is, there haven't been huge scientific studies done on them. Why? This is the thing I don't understand. They do scientific studies on all these ridiculous things, and yet actually this is the stuff people care about on a day-to-day basis, isn't it? It'd be impossible to tell, wouldn't it? You'd have to study a large number of people throughout their whole lives and separate out factors of whether they smoked, how much exercise they got, what There are people out there curing HIV. They could tell me whether or not eating a lemon works the cure. They could tell you 50 years later, yeah. Obviously, if it does work, it's a very cheap cure for a lot of ailments. Because we're going through this thing at the moment in um, uh, our antenatal classes. Mm -hmm. 
where one of the women there said, I'm in a lot of pain. Is there anything I can do uh, to stop my stomach cramps? Mm -hmm. And the lady said, well, there's no proof, but uh, raspberry tea. I've heard about raspberry tea for, yeah, that and menstrual cramps as well. How is there no proof? Like, there's millions of women around the world that have babies that would like to know whether that works or not properly. That's not the point, though. I mean, I think generally women's health, there are a lot of things there's very poor research about, particularly in pregnancy, because they don't want to do scientific experiments on pregnant pregnant people. That's fair enough. But they don't really do them either into periods. I'm calling for that research, Helen. I I don't even have have a womb. You do not have the clout. But but if I was GlaxoSmithKline... Mm I'd yep. just take some of that budget away from the cancer drugs and I'd say, look, here's a market people want. No, because that would take away their own uh, market for guess, selling people tea. tablets because yeah. vinegar, you just get some vinegar. Although apparently, apparently the benefits of like the highly distilled vinegar are slim. You need vinegar that's kind of cloudy and has got a kind of spider-like vinegar mother floating inside the bottle. A so vinegar mother? The thing that creates more vinegar, like a sourdough starter, but for vinegar. I've wow. never heard the phrase vinegar mother no, either. Right. Yeah. That's like a Terry Pratchett I just character. thought vinegar was like off wine. I didn't realise it had like a, a creature inside it. But I've read uh, a lot of stuff saying that cider vinegar has benefits for like uh, cardiovascular ailments and uh, gastrointestinal ailments and also helps weight loss. And there is some evidence for the weight loss. They have done studies, I think like 100-ish people, saying that the, the people who had the vinegar lost more weight than the people who had placebos and the people who had nothing. But still, like on a small sample, I don't think you can necessarily draw enough of a conclusion because there would be like individual factors affecting those people anyway and from a sample of like 40 people who are on the vinegar it's not going to be it's not going to be that scientific is it you talked about benefits yeah what is the benefit to delaying your period anyway you're still going to have it is it even that good for you uh no i i think it probably isn't that good for you i think you can delay it a few hours at a time with the vinegar does but, it just say that you don't have it at work or whatever? Yeah, probably. But yeah. for some people who have very heavy periods that are a problem, then they can make them lighter with the vinegar. Okay. But all this talk of health benefits of vinegar, there may also be problems with drinking vinegar for your health. <laughs> who knew? Um, su- such as... <laughs> what about washing out your fanny with it? What about that? It can mess up medications that you might be taking. Yeah. It can alter insulin levels and <laughs> basically rot any rottable part of your body. See, the thing with old wives' tales is that wouldn't have mattered 100 years ago because you'd die. Dead anyway. Die like, who, ca- who cares if you get low bone density because of the vinegar? You're dead. You're dead. If you got a question, got a question, email your question, email your question to answer me, to answer me this podcast at googlemail.com. Answer me this podcast at googlemail.com. Time for a question from Tom in Edinburgh who says, I have embarked on a literary adventure. Assume he's reading uh, Katie Price's latest novel. Uh, (laughs) Is she still up to that? Um, She must be, mustn't she? Even with declining returns. Isn't it remarkable that Katie Price, one of the most prolific authors of our lifetimes? (laughs) I know, it's extraordinary. Um, But I bet those books are okay because because she can probably afford a really good ghostwriter. And the brand is kind of like... Yeah, but you have to choose like, to hire a really good ghostwriter, don't you? Yeah, but she wouldn't be making the choice. Like, she's going to have a good publisher. The publisher will say, we'll sell more books if the book's well-written. No, you they know. won't. They're not selling on the base of the writing. They're selling on the base of, of someone wanting to buy a book. Katie no, Price is ostensibly yeah, written. You're right, but people have to come back and buy it again next Christmas. I still think That's they're going to... And what's the Katie Price brand? It's kind of like glamour and sex and... Troubled personal and life. motherhood, which might be a bit boring. But basically, it's horse. The, the woman who has it all, yeah, who, who has she a big house... horses. ...and also has lots of sex. That's probably quite a good read. 
Well, Jilly Cooper's already done it. Jilly Cooper's already... It's probably Jilly Cooper for the 21st century. Anyway, Tom isn't doing that. Uh, Might be. (laughs) Before we continue speculating any further as to what's in the Katie Price novel, which none of us are ever going to read. No, thanks. Even if we go insane and we're locked up in a place where the only book in the library is a Katie Price novel. Would you read one if you were paid to read it? Um, What, like to write a review about it? Yes. I suppose in my lifetime, that has been the most usual circumstance in which I've been paid to read a book, but not the exclusive circumstance. See, it's difficult because... Let's say I got paid £200 to write a book review. Oh, dream on me in this day and age. But let's say I did. Okay. Um, you're then getting an invitation to, to like write something quite funny, aren't you, if you're given Katie Price's book. But That's then, true. But it's an easy target as well. Yeah. So, so actually the artistic challenge would be quite interesting because it, the challenge would be to slag it off in a way that was a bit more ingenious. Yes. <laughs> so, or... Or it's good and then you don't have to slag yeah. it off. But imagine, what, imagine the position you'd put yourself in, Helen, if you as a book reviewer were given Katie Price's new novel and you thought it was amazing. Yeah. Do you say in The Observer, the novel of the year? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Because the number of books where you just feel nothing is so overwhelming that to Mm. get a book that makes you feel anything is a relief. I actually read uh, Jade Goody's autobiography. How was it? Absolutely brilliant. Mm. But you see, she she lived an interesting life. She did. And that was really well ghostwritten as well. I'd imagine she was very candid as well. Yeah. Because that's the annoying thing about autobiographies when they're, they're boring. Mm. And, and clearly goes written. Do you think um, do you think Katie Price reads the books that she's purportedly written? She hasn't got time. They probably turn them out quicker than she could read them. <laughs> anyway, this Tom isn't doing that. Not, right, nothing to do with Katie um, Price. <laughs> this was all a massive tangent based purely on his first sentence, right? Uh, which, as a reminder, was I have embarked on a literary adventure. Nothing to do with Katie. Nothing Price. to do with Katie Price. Footnote: I am taking part in NaNoWriMo. November Writer Novel Month. I'd never heard of that. How have you heard of that? Is it a hashtag somewhere? Yeah, I've seen a hashtag. Right. Okay. Well, it is, uh, he says, in a way that's very concise, so this is boding well. Uh, An online (laughs) writing exercise in which I have to write 50,000 words of a novel in 30 days. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm-hmm. Works out 1,667 words a day. I'm writing you this email on day two, and I'm already procrastinating. That is a very essential part of the creative process. I'm I'm surprised it... (laughs) Waited until day two, to be honest. I suppose day two is the time it strikes, isn't it? Because day one, you get out of your system everything you want to say. And I don't you're know. Like, Shit, I've got to write this. I would procrastinate days one to 29 and then get everything <laughs> done in the last three hours of day 30. Yeah, I always do that with deadlines. I wish I, I, wish wish I, I had enough discipline. Yeah. No, but the, All you have uh, to no. do is tell yourself the deadline's tomorrow, no, but I've, I can't do it. I've turned this around, though. I've, I've realised I'm not going to change that now. Therefore, I can recognise its strengths, and its strengths are... I'm sitting that- on the couch not working for three days beforehand. That would be a boon. Yeah. That would be a dream at this point. I've had like two days off this whole year. Um, but it's because if you leave things till that late, you don't spend all this time wondering about the creative decisions. You just automatically make the right one because you don't have time to think about it. Whereas if you have a lot of options and time to mull over them, you can spend days going, oh, but but should they go to the Doge's palace or should they puke instead? But you don't automatically make the right one. You, well, you I automatically, do, I'm amazing. <laughs> you automatically make the instinctive one. That's different. Well, it is make- possible you must sometimes look back at your own work and think, oh, that was the wrong decision. You don't have time to second-guess yourself, and I think generally your decisions would probably be more right than if you spent a lot of time second-guessing them. You need to get the stuff out quickly, which is the whole point of NaNoWriMo. Mm. Uh, blart it out onto the page, and then you fix it afterwards. You can change it a lot afterwards. I think a lot of the novels that have been published as a result of NaNoWriMo have been through extensive editing and rewrites. It's just to get yourself through the pain barrier. Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe that's the answer to the question. Right. He says, Helen, answer me this. Has there been a successful novel that's been written in a month? 
Mm. We did a shorter time period than that. Yes, I, I mean, Barbara Cartland used to write one every two weeks. I mean, I don't know how personally involved. Yeah, we but... see, again, this is definition of successful, isn't it? Financially successful, inevitably. Let me throw some names of novels at you and see if you recognise any of them and therefore we can count them as yeah. successful. Me with my English degree from Oxford, I better recognise none of them. Go yeah, on. probably. Boy in the Striped Pyjamas. Oh yeah, I heard of that. Yeah, yeah, concentration camp. Apparently took him two and a half days. Really? Yeah. Bloody hell. D- and so he just like didn't eat or sleep or anything, just churned it all out in a big fugue. Fahrenheit 451, first draft oh, was 10 days. But thriller? The- Cold War thriller? Uh, it's a, a science fiction dystopia, sort of along the lines of 1984, but about uh, books. But the eventual novel was twice as long, because, like what I'm saying, get everything out in the initial burst, and yeah, then you then, then you go back yeah. and fix it. Uh-huh. Uh, na- Naked Lunch, 11 Days and Nights. Never heard of it. Uh, William S. Burroughs, uh, Beat Poet. Uh, it was probably on a lot of drugs. Drugs seem to figure a lot in the fast novel writing. Byron used to write on drugs, didn't he? Oh, they were all at it in those days. But I mean, he, I bet he wrote all of Don Juan in, in like two weeks. <sighs> that's was. not a novel, but it's an, a long poem that's basically Didn't a novel. Frankenstein take to write that? Because that was a ghost story, wasn't it? Over one night initially. I think that was the myth that it took her one night to write Frankenstein, but I'm not sure that that's Maybe that's just the fact. germ of the idea. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Heard um, of that? That's the first one so that Robert, you've mentioned that Robert I've read. Louis Stevenson. Yeah, well, apparently he wrote a short story, according to the myth, burnt it and then rewrote it in three to six days whilst off his face on coke right he was ill though he was long term ill yeah. wasn't he Stevenson yeah yeah and so the coke might have been medical rather than just a Brett Easton Ellis style writing a novel in a <laughs> coke flurry but I'm not sure whether the burnt story was true or not uh, but there does also does seem to be an element of rewriting because um on the road familiar with that uh, Jack Kerouac y- Jack Kerouac yeah Apparently Jack Kerouac really hated the original version of On the Road. He was right to. Everyone else hates the final version. Either that or the publisher rejected it. So he started from scratch, typing on a 120-foot continuous piece of paper so he didn't have to change the typewriter paper. That's amazing. And wrote it in two to three weeks. But then technically he'd already done the draft, hadn't he? The rejected draft. So what to believe? Mm. I think when I was a kid I wrote a novel in about three days. How long was it, I though? I wouldn't say it was successful. Like 500 words. Uh... I'd read a lot of Ben Elton at that stage. You know when you yeah. when you just make that segue from reading teenage fiction into yeah. sort of adult fiction. Yeah. So I read like Popcorn and what was the one about the environment? Didn't even know. Ah, uh, it was the one about cars clogging up the environment. Oh no. He was, you know, Ben Elton when you're 15 is a good writer. Yeah. Um, and I'd consumed like 10 of those, and yeah. then I was like Gridlock. That's what it was called, Gridlock. Uh, and then I just write. I'll write a novel, and of course it, it reads exactly like one of Ben Elton's 90s novels. You could but have I, made loads of money then. I, do, <laughs> I did write. I think I wrote three chapters. It wasn't the whole thing, but it was it was yeah. three good chapters, and then I ran out of ideas. But that's still impressive. You've got three good chapters out. A lot of people are probably defeated like two pages in because mm. getting into a novel is hard. Uh, apparently Dostoevsky wrote The Gambler in three weeks because he had uh, gambling debts that he needed to pay off pretty fast. It's an interesting uh, motivator there. Stephen King, I think, wrote a lot of books really fast. I think... Stephen King writes a lot of yeah. his stuff fast, I reckon. But yeah. he has a real work ethic, doesn't he? He says, you know, he writes 1,500 words a day, yeah. like minimum. And that's... Writes itself, though, doesn't it? Once you've once you got the idea. Oh, I don't think it does. I like a Stephen yeah. King. And the dog's haunted. And it's scary. And the old woman's haunted. Have you read any Stephen King books? Yeah, I, I, and the, and the blood I have, came out. but not for a while. Um, <laughs> the blood came out. Apparently, The Running Man only <laughs> took him a week, and Carrie took him two weeks. But then again, like, they might write the body of it and then spend, like, seven years finessing it. Yeah. I understand the virtue in just getting on and not not procrastinating and putting pen to paper but actually equally i'm sure some of the very best novels are the product sadly of many many years of work and that you know it's not the one method's better than the other it's that you should try dashing it off so that you don't procrastinate unnecessarily sometimes procrastination can be helpful i think though this is a good procrastination buster method even if nothing comes of it and presumably the majority of these don't finish the month 
but at least they get something started. And and it's been going since 1999, NaNoWriMo, and it's been getting bigger and bigger. Like it started with a couple of dozen people and now I think millions of people try to chip in. And now it's time for today's intermission in which we will hear a little nugget from the Answer Me This Christmas album. Because Christmas approaches with all of the grim inevitability of death. Yes, that's right. The Answer Me This Christmas album is still out. We recorded it in 2013, but if, if you've Christmas never heard it before... Christmas is the same pretty much every time. <laughs> uh, and it's never been on the podcast feed. It's never been available for free. The only place you can hear the Answer Me This Christmas album is by buying it from iTunes or Amazon or at answermethisstore.com. I don't really send many Christmas cards now, and as a result, I very rarely get any, but I do get one each year from um, a Nepalese takeaway that we sometimes frequent here. <laughs> <laughs> and it just says, dear customer. Yeah, that's uh, nice, isn't it? The personal touch yeah, they've really gone yeah, for Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really felt like a very valuable human being. Mm. I didn't send them one. That was rude, wasn't it? <laughs> About a month ahead of Christmas is an acceptable time to start listening to Christmas stuff. And this episode is sponsored by Dobby's Garden Centres, who are releasing a very cute series of Christmas podcasts. Yeah, they're called Dobby and Friends. If you've got kids, you should download these. They're free. Yeah, Dobby's friends are all other festive animals. Yeah, Dobby is a reindeer. He's Santa's 10th reindeer. Come Dobby and Blitzen. <laughs> and, uh... and, oh, they're fun. I've busted through two today because uh, <laughs> I was enjoying them so much. Because the narrator is a bit like David Attenborough, except he's talking about fictional penguins. Do you know who it is? I looked it up. Oh. Bernard Cribbins. Oh, oh yeah. Bernard, Bernard Cribbins. Cribbins. Well, is good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, Bernard Cribbins does a bang-up job. So I think it's good if you've got like your child in the car and they're getting a bit Christmas overhyped, you can bung one of these on. It won't make you want to scream because it's actually quite enchanting. They're, they're beautifully orchestrated, nice little stories they are for kids. Really nicely produced. Yeah, they are. You can get these podcasts from iTunes, Acast and Dobbies.com. So thanks very much to Dobbies for sponsoring this Christmassy section of the show. Yeah, first question of Christmas is from Tom I'm who so says excited. Christmas is approaching. Uh, and my mum loves it. Because it's my birthday too. The Christ child, Tom. <laughs> and she is one of those people that wants to make everyone happy and do no wrong. Oh, those people oh. really shit up Christmas. Because <laughs> my granny was like that and it was a four-month nightmare every year. So, says Tom, everyone is out of the house. He's painting a picture here. Right, I've seen so, that happen. Right, so it has happened, but he's telling it in present tense. Yeah. So we feel thrilled. He hasn't got cribbins to narrate this. He's only got man to work with here. Man is good. Uh, so... Everyone is out the house and two parcels get delivered. One is slightly opened. Santa's really getting sloppy. (laughs) One is slightly opened. And of course, says Tom, my curiosity comes out. I have to take a look inside. Just have to. I find it is a book regarding a camera. Right. And how to use that camera properly. Mm -hmm. However, Mm -hmm. the book is about the complete wrong camera. This book would be no good to me. I know this book is for me because I'm doing TV and film production. Is it possible that she's got you the book for Christmas and the camera for your birthday? Is it possible this is just a decoy to see when you're going to open the presents? She thought, I'll just tear the corner off this parcel just to get him all tense throughout December. So, Helen, answer me this. Should I tell mum I've seen the book and spare her the time and money? Mm -hmm. She spent the money. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, She cannot be spared. Or should I wait till Christmas and then act surprised and then go and change it? Yeah, well, that seems like a good solution, going and changing it quietly after. mm, Mm -hmm. The thing is, if... I mean, you've painted a picture well of someone who really does want to make everyone happy and has tried to get you a really thoughtful gift. Yeah. I think, actually, 
she'd respond quite positively if you say i know i shouldn't have seen it but i couldn't help seeing it and it's such a great gift but actually it's slightly the wrong one right i think better because she'll she'll know she'll be upset if on the day you say this isn't quite the right wrong so you'd have to carry on acting the whole way through christmas day but i was wondering whether the greater problem is not the present and having to return it and switch it for a different book but just the fact that he found out what a present was whether that would be a breach of trust that lasted a lot longer than this camera would I would go for her, not knowing that she messed up or that he snooped. Well, okay, so actually we disagree. Yeah. Martin Christmas, you'll have to adjudicate here. What do you say? Who's right? I just think it's, without intending to be, so rude and ungrateful to tell someone you've looked at the present that they've got for you and and it's not what you want. Okay, well then Helen's solution wins the day. I have an analogue. When I was little, there was one cupboard in the house where next to the dog's bed where my parents used to hide our presents do you remember those slippers that were kind of like putting your feet into a cuddly toy oh yeah i love those yeah well i was very thrilled to discover that i'd been bought a pair of those slippers how far before christmas did you realize that father christmas had bought you those i i think i already knew about the administration system of christmas presents right. by then yeah she says euphemistically yes. <laughs> um i can't remember how old i was maybe about nine but yeah. the slippers were too small and i knew that because i'd taken out the cupboard and tried them on right tricky. but i couldn't say anything so i just had to wait till christmas and then they got me i think garfield slippers instead that were the right size but were they disappointed when the slippers were too small didn't care <laughs> they didn't care no no well, you can't really argue with uh, your feet being the wrong size for the slippers and you can't really argue with that camera book being wrong, but you can argue with the snooping. Here's a question from Gier from South Korea and Teresa from Germany. Gosh, it's I don't an think... intercontinental we've... question. Yeah, I don't think we've ever had such an ambitious uh, pairing of question asking. <laughs> this is such a good question. It took two continents to, uh, to put it, it together. It sounds like a Guinness World Record. It was presumably drafted as part of a UN resolution. Uh, it says, uh, The other day, my friend Teresa, so I suppose this is Gier, Uh, came up with the best question I've heard so far this year. Wow. Will it be the same situation for us, I wonder? Because we've heard thousands this (laughs) year. We have heard many. Uh, Helen, answer me this. Why aren't there any paintings of the Virgin Mary during her pregnancy? Mm -hmm. I know it was an immaculate conception and whatever, uh, but she must have gone through the nine months of childbearing like all other humans. Like all other humans impregnated by God, the rules are just the same as for, <laughs> for mortal women. There's no suggestion that she doesn't go through normal pregnancy, is there? In no, because the, the she's, she's big with child when they make the pilgrimage to, to Bethlehem. She's big with child. I think Matthew, Mark, Luke and John were all a bit squeamish about the finer detail of the pregnancy. I think generally mm. people were until... Until um, Demi Moore went on the cover of Vanity Fair. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> uh, so there was a couple of thousand years in between where people were like, ooh, icky, nasty. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, GS says, both I and Teresa are not religious and are clueless about Catholicism in its ways, uh, but on a logical level, there surely must be paintings of her pregnant. There's a thousand of them depicting her and the baby Jesus, so why not of the pregnancy itself? Because uh, logic is obviously the filter to apply to the story of a virgin giving birth. But also, she might have, there might be pictures of her where she's very early pregnant, so she's not really showing. We've been racking our brains out, continues Gia, hardcore Googling, and even asking all of our Catholic friends who turned out just to be as clueless and as puzzled as we are. I don't think you have been doing hardcore Googling, because if you softcore Google image search the phrase paintings of pregnant Virgin Mary, you get to see paintings of the pregnant Virgin Mary. How pregnant are we talking? pretty pregnant i mean it's it's hard to say because it looks like she had quite a neat pregnancy it is her first child so often the stomach muscles are like still much more taut but she looks close to popping martin's just brought up one such image on google images and it's you can see the little baby jesus inside mary like a picture in picture yeah it's a bit like on beetles about when they're watching the stunt martin's looking at one where there's sort of a, a solar system on her stomach actually that is pretty clear that she's pregnant though isn't it 
The best known one of these is uh, by the 15th century Tuscan artist Piero della Francesca. It was finished in the 1460s in the fresco at Monterchi. Classic kind of thing. She's got her hand on the bump. But I read a curious thing, which is that while there were lots of carvings and sculptures of pregnant Marys, paintings of them relatively rare and were largely happening in Tuscany in the 130 years before Piero della Francesca's 1460s uh, painting of Virgin Mary. And this is the conspiracy theory. All of these pictures of pregnant Mary started appearing after the suppression of the Knights Templar, which happened in 1312. Now, now, what is that? Because I've heard of it, but I can't tell you what it is. It's a military religious order founded in the early 12th century to defend the kingdom the Crusaders had carved out in the Holy Land, and they wielded enormous political power. So a Christian sect, basically. Then Pope Clement V ordered them to be dissolved. Uh, because they used to uh, extract confessions out of people using particularly horrible torture methods. Uh-huh. So the Knights Templar got burnt at the stake. Then the pregnant Virgin Mary portrait started appearing. Okay, so what's the theory? I think the pregnant Marys were like a symbol of the Knights Templar being vanquished. But what this doesn't explain is why there weren't paintings of the Virgin Mary much after that, or why there weren't paintings outside of Tuscany where there wasn't such a Knights Templar problem. Well, the thing is, the most important thing she did in global historic yeah. terms, was giving birth to Jesus. Like Kate Middleton. Um, yeah. Once the baby's born, then, then that moment the scrappy. is... scrappy. Poor well, women. Well, it's probably best depicted in the manger. Three wise yeah. men are there, you know, got some supporting cast, a few other people around, there's a goat. Got some sheep to paint, that's fun. Yeah, nice sky and everything. That's a better scene, isn't it, than just... Oh, yeah, do you remember? This is when she was six months pregnant. Yeah. What happened? No, nothing. What did Matthew say about she, it? She, the name she, wasn't there. She vomited a bit. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I suppose she's only validated once she's given birth it must have been very difficult to do that long journey by donkey when heavily pregnant i mean that's inadvisable isn't it absolutely you know little donkey is my favorite christmas carol i didn't know that did i want to know that it's really nice especially when you have the coconuts what i've never seen coconuts in a church yeah you do little donkey the coconuts for the hooves it's not that beatsy a song so where do the coconuts Uh, come in it's like it's like little donkey little donkey on the I guess that's the sort of rhythm you'd go for. It's calling out for a reggae remix. And Martin's album is out now. Here's a question that uh, I suppose is quite relevant in these festive times. It's from Dave, who says, I've recently been ridiculed in my office by my co-workers, and while this is not unusual, this time I think it is unfair. (laughs) When they're just laughing at me for my lack of ability in the office. (laughs) Reasonable. Our boss brought in a box of chocolates for the team. The box travelled around our small office and when it arrived at me, it was missing the all-important piece of paper telling you what is what. I shouted out, where's the map? Which received fits of laughter and ridicule. (laughs) My family has always referred to the little piece of paper as the map, but I'm told this is definitely wrong, as a map is all about showing geographic layout and to assist you from going A to B. To be fair, a map is also about making sure you don't end up somewhere shit by mistake, which is how I feel about Turkish delight. Yeah. I have asked or orange cream oh I'm into yes. the orange creams are you yeah right I'm stocking them all up this Christmas and I'll bring them around on New Year's Day it might have been because as the youngest child I had last dibs on the chocolate so I had to enjoy the flavours no one else did and you had to get used to it yeah. it's, it's like I got a taste for spring onion crisps for the same reason <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dave says, I have asked my co-workers what it should be called and it was obvious they had no real idea. Morons that you work with. Oh, they laugh and laugh but really they're no better than you. <laughs> they did, however, come up with some suggestions. Oh. The index. Mm, not sort of. It's like the contents of a book rather than the index comes at the front. Yeah. The index will be more like a list of ingredients like orange, yep. chocolate, coffee, hazelnut. Tasting notes. I think Hotel Chocolat or any pretentious chocolate company could quite easily call that piece of paper 
the tasting notes. But then it would also have a description like, well, in this Madagascan yes. chocolate, there's Hints the notes. vanilla. Yes. Yeah. But we don't know what kind of chocolates these are. Well, so I- if these were those kind of chocolates, then I think that's appropriate. If mm. these were dairy box, not appropriate. Dave says another suggestion was menu. Yeah. Not bad. I'm happy with that. I'm not excited by menu. The little piece of paper. Not even trying. Bit yeah, desperate. Yeah, Ollie answered me this. What is the little piece of paper in a box of chocolates called? There's no official title, but I would go legend. Really? Yes. Why? Because that's what you have on a map, isn't it? So I don't think it's yeah, ridiculous. No, you have a key on a map. Well, I would I, go with key for the chocolates. Well, I'd go with legend. Or either is appropriate. Legend works for graph or figure as well. You're manufacturing your own range of chocolates. Yeah. You put in the little piece of paper, but you've decided that you are going to put on the top of the piece of paper what it is. Yeah. What is the word you put? Key. That's not so different from legend. It's three letters shorter, which is better. Sure. Mm. And also legend makes it sound like you're going to see something really exciting in there (laughs) rather than just the thing that allows you to avoid the lemon cream. Are you someone who actually always does consult the little piece of paper anyway? Or do you prefer dipping in and seeing what I'm going to get? Yeah, but that's how you get some crappy like (laughs) caramel thing that doesn't taste good. I like that. It's interesting to see your own aesthetic prejudices because uh, you know you're drawn to a particular layout or shade of chocolate and then the key might tell you that actually that is not going to be as appealing to you as the one you find ugly on first glance okay i'm going to give you a shape and you're going to tell me whether you think it's a nice chocolate or a not nice chocolate okay Go. okay shell no mm. quick gotta think quickly shell yeah will you pick a shell yeah yeah i would too square Yes. Nah, no. Yes, I would. I think hard toffee. It's round and it's got the depiction of a strawberry print on it. No. Absolutely no, no. fucking way in the world. <laughs> of course. See? So there is there's okay. little subliminal diamond. Ooh, um yes. Yes, I yes. Do, yes. yes. I think that's going to be quality, yeah. Banana. You'd Ooh, think about well, it. I think I think I'll that's a Brazil nut in okay. there. Wrapped oh, yeah. in green paper. Yes. 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 That's a noisette. Wrapped in gold paper. That's a caramel or toffee. Yes. Wrapped in purple paper. Yes, yes. please, as quickly hazelnut. as possible. Hazelnut. So you so say you don't need yeah, the legend at all. Yeah, but sometimes it might be coconut. You can just blue, put the base blue of the foil. Blue, coconut, I'm not uh, so keen Coconut booby trap. <laughs> or sometimes cracknel. Whatever that is. Well, listeners, I think it's time to wrap up this episode of Answer Me This. Uh, like it's a Christmas present that someone is going to infiltrate the packaging of. Um, but uh, please do provide questions for future episodes of Answer Me This. Every one of those is a little present we love to unwrap in our inbox. It's a wonderful gift. A wonderful <laughs> gift. Please email your questions. You can phone us. You can Skype us. Our contact details are on our website. Answermethispodcast.com uh, And remember, whilst you're on the website, to click on our Facebook and Twitter buttons to uh, follow us on social media. And we have various side projects as well. I make the Allusionist podcast. We got an email the other day from uh, someone saying, oh, I'm a massive fan of Answer Me This. I didn't even know you were doing another podcast until now. I was like, oh, I've been talking about it all year. Yeah. How massive People like you've just you've just shown up your own lie i think in the outro people are like taking their headphones off at this point trying i to get said off the it bus. at the beginning like the first episode this year that was my big opener <laughs> jesus people you should listen to my podcast i do a podcast called song by song where we talk about every tom Waits song in chronological order and there is also my brand new show the modern man on this week's show i am discussing my impending fatherhood uh with two comedians who they themselves are also to be dads in january Stuart goldsmith from the comedians comedian podcast and some of our jingles and some of our jingles uh, and Tom Price. Terrifying times for the world. Yeah, waiting you know, progeny. More, te- more terrible children. And thank you very much to Dobby's Garden Centre for sponsoring this episode of Answer Me This and putting out your cute Christmas podcast with Bernard Cribbins. <laughs> and we'll see you without Bernard Cribbins, but Aww. very much in his spirit. I bet he'd do the show if we asked him. <laughs> Next time. Bye! Bye.